Good morning. All right, if you need a Bible, I would just suggest you raise your hand. We have uh, people that will bring you those. If you don't have a Bible of your own, this is for you to keep. Uh, we're going to be using it. And I always suggest, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of biased. I like the paper Bible. I've got an iPad and I've got it on my phone. But, um, you know, when, when I'm reading my Bible on, uh, on paper, I've never gotten a Facebook notification on my Bible or a Twitter notification or Instagram. Like, I've never done that. And so I don't get distracted on my regular Bible. So I just want to, just a, a plug for paper, you know. I, I still, you know, my generation apparently doesn't like paper anymore. Whatever. I like paper. Um, so we're going to be in uh, the book of Matthew today. We're going to be kind of all over the Old Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 1. So you could take that, put your thumb in it. We'll be in there in just a moment. Uh, so we're starting a new series today called This Changes Everything. And by this, we just wanted to remind you for a second, what is this? Obviously, this is the birth of Jesus. And that is my lovely wife. We took that picture this week. So if any of you were like, that person looks familiar. That's Desiree up there um, posing for that picture. So thank you, Desiree. She's in the back. She probably doesn't want to be pointed out. But wave, wave your hand. Right? Real, <laughs> but by this, we mean the birth of Jesus. It changes everything. And why does it change everything? Why does the birth of this one child change everything for all of human history as we know it? Because by this we're talking about the God who created heaven and earth, the self-existing one. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who took his people out of Egypt, the God who made it so their sandals didn't wear out and so they had food to eat every single day through nothing that they did on their own. The God who parted the Jordan River, the God who gave his people a place, the God who, who hovered there with his people as they left for exile, even when they disobeyed him. The God who promised through the prophet Isaiah, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And they will call him that because it means God with us. The God who is continually praised and worshipped in heaven. The God who is given unceasing praise by his legions of angels and by what Revelation tells us is all creation is praising God. Stepped out of heaven and took on flesh in humanity and came and joined us. He took on flesh. And I don't care who you are, that should change things for you. That demands a response. It doesn't matter who you are. If God stepped out of his place in heaven and came to be one of us, that changes things. That changes things for my life personally, and that should change things for our lives corporately. So if you have your Bible, like I said, flip it open to Matthew 1. We're going to be in there in just a minute. We're going to talk a little bit about genealogies today and why they're so important. Um, and some of you might... I'm well aware of this. When you read in the Bible, you maybe get through the Old Testament, and you see a genealogy, and you're like, sweet, I can skip a page, you know, and just keep on reading. <laughs> I mean, I've done that. Has anybody else been in that boat? And we look at genealogies, and we go, oh, just a whole list. Skip that. But one of the things that we don't even think of is that pen and paper were incredibly scarce when they were writing. This is not something that they just had, you know, mounds and reams of paper when I went to Cuba a couple of weeks ago, they told us ahead of time, uh, would you pack a few reams of paper because the only paper they get is from us. 
And so I packed reams of paper. My bag was overweight. I had to give away a piece of a ream of paper. They weigh 5.5 pounds, by the way, just so you know. But my point is they're incredibly scarce. And so in Scripture, if somebody is writing something down, it's usually pretty important. It's not there by accident. There, there's so much meaning into this. And I was even thinking this week as I was studying, like, some producers could get a hold of the history behind Matthew 1 and do amazing uh, reality TV show or historical drama because there is some drama involved in Matthew chapter 1, let me tell you. But first, let me give you the reason why genealogies are important. In a Western mindset, when you meet somebody, when we talk to somebody, immediately the question that is like one or two questions away after you meet somebody is, so what do you do for a living, right? Oh, I'm Dave, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. I mean, that's the first question, what do you do? Because your profession speaks a lot about you, and that's what we do in Western cultures. But in the Eastern culture, the question is, who do you belong to? What family do you come from? Who's your grandmother? Who's, oh, and they start connecting. I know them, I know them. So who's your niece? Who's your aunt? Who's your uncle? They want to know your whole family line. And then the last question is, what do you do? There's just this mental divide. It's a, it's a totally different way of thinking between Eastern and Western cultures. And this was especially true during the time of Jesus. Genealogies were important. They showed a pedigree. They showed where you came from. They, they, it was sort of like, you know, for peasants and for slaves, they didn't keep genealogies. For servants, they didn't keep them. But for really important people, they did. I love in the Gospel of Mark, there is no genealogy. Because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the suffering servant. And for servants, you don't keep records like that. I love that. And it's kind of rushed. The word immediately is all through the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the the genealogy really starts out with Abraham. And it starts talking, and we're going to read this in a moment. But it starts out with Abraham, and it talks about how uh, Jesus' Jewish roots, it really talks about David and how he came in Abraham and through the line of David. And it shows Jesus' pedigree as a, a real, bona fide, line of David Jewish person, 100% purity. That's what they're trying to show, that this guy is a Jew among Jews. Because the Gospel of Matthew was written to Jewish folks at the time. The Gospel of Luke, it has a genealogy as well. It, it has a genealogy and it goes back to Adam. And so the, it, what the Gospel of Luke is trying to show is that, that all humanity is tied to Jesus because Jesus goes all the way back to Adam. See, genealogies are trying to prove a point whenever they're in Scripture. In the Gospel of John, the genealogy of Jesus might not be readily obvious, but it's there right in the very first pages. What John wanted to show is that Jesus came, the, the Son of God came directly from the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The word was God, and the word was with God. And then in, all the way in four, verse 14, it says, and then the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The NCF translation. So genealogies are important. They're trying to communicate something. And so if we just say, oh, sweet, a genealogy, I can squip, skip a page, we're missing a lot. Now, you need a lot to understand these. I, I understand that. You need to, to know some historical background. You need a lot. So bear with me today. We're going to get through some really interesting stuff, I think, at least stuff for me that was very interesting. So Matthew, uh, today we're going to get through six verses, one, Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, 
Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that exciting? Right? You're with me on that? Okay, let me tell you why. <laughs> so we're going to uh, pause here for today. Because there's so much just in these first six verses. First, there's four women mentioned in, gene- yeah, in Jesus' genealogy. Four women, right in this very first part. Tamar, who, if any of you remember, this is why I said this could be like a whole, they can make a whole drama out of this. Tamar, all the way back in the book of Genesis, was the daughter-in-law of a guy named Judah. And Judah had these sons, and she was married to one of them, and there was something called the Leverite marriage. And what happened in this marriage ritual was you'd marry one, and then if the son died, the other son would be obligated to marry her and give her a child so that the family name would continue, and the child would be sort of in the place of the brother that died, right? No one's excited about this? So anyways, (laughs) it's like, like, man, I know my sister-in-law. I'm not excited about this thing. Don't worry, we're not bringing it back. We're not, this is Bronze Age stuff, so try not to judge it, because it is Bronze Age. <laughs> and Judah is thinking, man, this girl tomorrow, she's pretty rough on, on, son of, on my kids. You know, they keep dying as they're, uh, they keep dying. And, and so he had this other son that he held back, and this was a grave sin. He should not have done that. And then until one day she dressed up as a temple prostitute, and Judah came walking by, and he propositioned her and got her pregnant, but she was wearing a veil, and so he couldn't see who it was, and she was wearing this veil, and, and, and he ends up, she got pregnant, and he said, let's take her out in the streets and stone her for what she has done, and she said, the, the man who my baby belongs to is the man who owns these, and she had a staff in his court that revealed, or a seal in his court, which revealed that... Um, he had not followed the regulations, the Leverite marriage. And I love Judah's response. Judah's response was, she is more righteous than I. He was always kind of quick to repent. That's one of the things I like about Judah. She is more righteous than I. So Tamar is in the line of J- J- uh, Jesus, the woman who pretended to be a prostitute. And then there's Rahab, a woman who actually was a prostitute, right? She was a prostitute, and, and she was the person, if you remember your your Old Testament history, she's the person who was in the walls of Jericho, and she lived there, and, and these spies came up, and she helped them, and she kept them, and she hid them. And, and even through her, the, the town of Jericho was able to be ransacked and taken, but they saved her because she was faithful. Then there's Ruth. We're going to talk a lot more about Ruth today. But there was Ruth who uncovered the feet of Boaz, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this today, but this was actually, absolutely a sexual advance. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And then it says the wife of Uriah. It doesn't say Bathsheba. We know the wife of Uriah. We know that story, David and Bathsheba, the whole scandal there. But it says the wife of Uriah. And I kept wondering, why would it say the wife of Uriah, not just Bathsheba? And as I was reading, um, I liked reading some, um, uh, there's New Testament rabbinical scholars. And I liked reading them because they, they add a lot to the text, stuff that I wasn't really thinking of. And here's one of the reasons why they said. Because in, in the Jewish consciousness, 
it would have been kind of offensive to have these names here in your genealogy. Because after all, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then Uriah, those are all Gentile names. Those are not Jewish names. Now, this genealogy has a very strong Jewish link to it. Now, it shows Jesus as like descendant of Abraham. He's, you know, the father of all Jews. And, and it just this really strong Jewish link to it. And yet, there's these four people mentioned that are all Gentiles. So what, what some of the scholars say on this is that this genealogy actually preaches a powerful message that through these women marrying into the family is how, Jesus, how the Gentiles are grafted in. See, they were expecting a Jewish Messiah, one to come and save the Jews, and they wanted the Jews to be saved from Rome, and, and it was going to be all Jewish, but Jesus had different plans. God had different plans. See, it started with the Jews to be a light of the world, and they never did that. They never lived up to the plans that God had for them. And so God sent his son, and all the way through his line are Gentiles grafted in. I love that. By these four women having babies, it grafted the Gentile line in there. And it even showed how David, who we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, David is really, he's got a, his great-grandmother was a Gentile, was a Moabitess. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. I love how Jesus didn't come from a family of saints, right? You would expect the Savior of the world to come from a family of, uh, of just saints and people who sat around and prayed all day long. And yet we can make reality shows about the lives of these people because their lives are littered all through Scripture of the scandal, the sin, the dirty laundry. It's all brought up. So if you're thinking today, Jesus wouldn't want me. I don't, I don't know why God, would, the God of the universe of all purity, would want to have a relationship with me. If that's what you're thinking today, you're in good company. Because Jesus' family, his own family, had a lot of screwed up stuff in their lives. They had a lot of things that were, there was betrayal, there's all sorts of stuff. Murder, you could make a whole movie. Makes the Bible a lot more interesting, by the way, when you read the Old Testament in light of disinformation. So essentially, you're in good company. So flip with me real quick to the book of Ruth. If, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the people in Jesus' line today and how they revealed the, the Old Testament stories were, were planning and plotting something and showing how this Savior was going to change everything. So flip with me to the book of Ruth. It goes uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? You guys all remember that from Awana in your kid days? So Ruth is probably not the first story you go to when you think of Christmas, and I understand that, but stick with me on this because this is a really important story. I think Matthew is trying to communicate that not only is Jesus' family, he's got a little bit of skeletons in the closet as far as Jesus' old family, but there are plenty of forerunners to Jesus, proclaiming that Jesus is going to come, proclaiming that there's going to be a Redeemer coming. And it, nowhere in the Bible does this do this more beautifully than the book of Ruth. So there's some characters you need to know, and I'm, I'm going to kind of take little sections of Ruth, and we're going to go through the whole book today. So there's so much we're missing. So I, I would just recommend you go home and read it. It's only a few chapters long. You could read it in, in a few minutes. But there's some characters you need to know. Naomi is married to a man named Amelia, and they live in Bethlehem, and they have two sons. They, there's a famine in the land, 
So with no money and no food, they decide to go to a place that will sustain them. They go to Moab, which is a different place, a mountain, and different community. It's a neighboring country, really, but they didn't necessarily have countries, even more tribes. Moab worshipped other gods. So soon after they get to Moab, Naomi has these two sons, and they marry these two ladies. Ten years go by. Naomi's husband is dead, and her two sons have died. And now she's left with these two daughters-in-law. And so she essentially says to them, go back to your father. You could leave. I'm going to go back to Israel. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorrowful. This is horrible. I'm leaving. The famine is over now. You're on your own. And this was a very great act of mercy. Because in the first century world, if you didn't have a man there to protect you, a man to provide for you, as a single woman, you were the most vulnerable of the population. You were dead. You were left to grovel. You were left to beg. You were left to glean. You were left to... To, to essentially be nothing in society. And so it was a terrible place for them to be. And presumably, a lot of the scholars think that Naomi's uh, daughter-in-laws would have had um, their father around still. And that's why she said, go back, to your, go back home. Because she knew that they could get remarried. She knew they, could not, they wouldn't have to live a life of poverty. She knew that they could have sons. And, and she knew that life would be okay for them but she would go live in misery. And then this is the famous line, first, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. This is the famous line in the book of Ruth that says this, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn, or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, there I will be buried. May the Lord um, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if death, if even death separates you and me. Many women today who convert to Judaism take the name Ruth, even though it's not a Jewish name. It's a Gentile name. It's a, it's a Moab name. They take the name Ruth, because, and they say this uh, line out of Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because it showed the faith that this woman would have had. She essentially was turning her back on everything she knew, on her homeland, on everything, because she had not really ever been to Israel. We, did, we don't have any record of that. She'd only heard stories. And so she's essentially turning her back on her clan, her family, and all that, saying, I will be there for you. I will protect you, Naomi. I will be there. She would have been a lot better off had she gone home with her father, presumably. But she made this huge decision to go to the unknown to make sure her mother-in-law is taken care of. This is not the main point, but it's a side point to the point today. Ruth was in a spot that in her life, um, we just simply call right-heartedness. She was living in this state of right-heartedness. She did the right thing because she had a right heart, a correct heart at the time. And because she did um, the right thing, um, I mean, she had this option right now to, to choose selfishness or selflessness. And because she took the selfless option, she put her mother-in-law ahead of her. I was kind of expecting to hear an amen from Tina Burton. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> when you find yourself in that sweet spot of living a selfless life, you almost can't live um, outside of the will of God. 
My, my point is this, of course you could, but, but when you're living a selfless life, when you're living for God and living for others, it, it's hard to be outside of the will of God. It's very difficult. And this is what, what Ruth was experiencing. She was living a life of selflessness. And in that life of selflessness, it was difficult for her to be outside of the will of God. So I just want to throw that out there. Not the main point, side point to the point today. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. See, like I said, we're skipping huge swaths of very important stuff. So, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. Now they had gone back. I'm sorry, I, I missed a little section of telling you what's next. They go back to, uh, to Israel, and she has to glean that's working among the fields, and she goes back, and, and here's what happens. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Emiliac, whose name is Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick the leftover grain behind anyone um, in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. So they went to go glean. And in the Old Testament, they set up this system of gleaning to care for the poor. The, the deal was, you have one shot at your fields. You have all these fields, and we don't necessarily live in a farming culture, so it might be hard for us to understand. But if you drive up through central California, you could, you could sense this. You have all these giant fields of grain, of whatever it is they're, they're uh, growing. And your workers have one shot at it. And they walk through, and they pick everything up, but stuff falls on the floor, and stuff gets left. You know, they, they try and pick the best of the best, and so the crumbs are left over. And, and so they pick it up, pick it up, and they, and they go and they sell it, and they do whatever they're going to do with their food. But the, left, the rest is left for the poor. And the poor would have to go through there, and they would have to pick it up, and they would have to make their living off of gleaning. And they would have to have their food from all of that. And so this was a law in Israel. And it said that it, it basically allowed for the poor to eat and the survival of Ruth and Naomi. And there she meets a man. As she's gleaning, as she's working in the fields, she meets a man. And this man is Boaz. Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with this woman and with the women who work for me. So this guy Boaz sees her and, and is kind of impressed with her. Probably, you know, she's a young lady, probably attracted to her. Sees her and, and wants her to keep coming back but also kind of knows that there's something there that's a little bit deeper. So when Ruth can't catch a break anywhere else, this guy Boaz is kind to her. He ends up giving food to her and taking care of her. She's a foreigner, and he takes care of her. Like I said, she was from Moab. She was not really a Jew in their mind. She didn't belong. And this guy shows all kinds of kindness and favor to her. So Ruth goes to her mother-in-law and starts talking about this guy Boaz. How do I find favor with this guy? How do I, what do I do next? So turn with me to chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. And this is the advice of the mother-in-law to the daughter-in-law. This is where it gets a little fun, I guess. Wash and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. And by the way, women, you've been stealing the covers ever since Ruth, okay? Just so you know. And my feet get cold at night. I'm just telling you. Anyways, anybody see that thing on Facebook where it says how guys roll over and then how women roll over? It's totally true. They just, like, take the whole blanket. And Anyways. I'm not talking about anybody in particular, Desiree. She's not here anymore, huh? She, 
Well, of course, my wife walked down on my sermon. Anyways, uh, <laughs> she went down, let's see, went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Then Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lie down. In the middle of the night, uh, something startled the man. He turned and asked the woman who was lying at, who was lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my guardian redeemer in our family. Those are important words, guardian redeemer. Ruth was in a very ancient way making herself available to Boaz. In a, in a sexual way. Now, I've got, if you were to, you've got a great biblical argument about how I don't think they did anything inappropriate until after they were married. And I've got a sweet biblical argument for that. So you have to take my word on that because we don't have time to get into that today. But she put some perfume on, she slept at his feet. Scholarly, scholars widely disagree on the signals that were sent. We have some people saying it meant one thing, and then you have some scholars saying, nope, they totally, this was a total sexual thing. So it, 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 remember, Bronze Age, we're not going to judge the Bronze Age being 21st century people because it's different ethics. So I'm in the camp that they remained pure until marriage, and because, I'll give you the just of the argument. He sent her away. He said, we don't want anybody to think anything inappropriate happened. And he sent her away before anybody else could see because they wouldn't want anybody talking. And so I think that Boaz was a stand-up guy here. But it turns out this guy named Boaz was the guardian redeemer to Ruth. I love that. It is this phrase. He's the guardian redeemer to Ruth. And, and that might be your first time ever hearing that. If you read uh, the Bible, some older translations, which I actually like better, it says kinsman redeemer. I like that phrase a little bit better. It's the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer. So what on earth is a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer? It actually comes out of the book of Leviticus. It comes out of some really Old Testament stuff. Chapter 25, 47 through 54, we'll have it up on the screen. It says this. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption. After that, they have sold themselves one of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or a blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or, if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They, they and their buyer are to count the time of the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. The price for their release is to be based on the rate paid of the hired worker for that number of years. If many years remain, they must pay for their redemption and a large share of the price paid for them. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for the redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from the year to year. You must see them, you must see to it that those uh, whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. Did you guys get all that? It's like contractual. That's kind of the book of Leviticus. It's just boom, boom, boom. Just tells you the contract. I understand you didn't get all that. Let me break it down for you. Must be a family member to redeem you, to buy you back from your financial servitude, financial slavery. He must be free himself. The kinsman redeemer or the guardian redeemer has to be free themselves. He must be willing and able, uh, must be able to pay the price and must be willing to pay the price. By the way, I like in the Old Testament that redemption actually costs you something. You actually need to pay for something. There's a sacrificial system. It, 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 it was not cheap. You actually had to do something. While the Jews were wandering Israel, God did something for his people that were amazing. He set this up and he set up the, the sacrificial system. 
so that there was a way in which people could be redeemed by God and redeemed by each other. Does that make sense? So he does this, and over and over and over again, the people are doing this. They're redeemed by God, and then they're redeemed by each other. And they're putting this in motion. They're practicing it. Because one day, the true Redeemer would come. And the people would have to recognize it when they saw it. So these people are called by God to put on display God's redemption. But through interpersonal relationships. However, the only example that we have in the entire Bible of the kinsman-redeemer thing actually happening is in the book of Ruth. We have no other example in the Bible other than the book of Ruth. So Ruth was eventually redeemed, and she married her redeemer, Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth end up having some kids. Boaz becomes the father of this guy named Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of a kid named David, a guy who ended up being Israel's greatest king. But check this out, and and I love the genius of this. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of the king David. Boaz took this foreign woman, and he showed pity on her. And he loved her. And, and And he helped her create something of her life. And then he married her and redeemed her. Where do you think that Boaz learned that kind of love and self-giving to a foreigner? Maybe it was from his mother, the prostitute named Rahab. Maybe that's where he learned it from. Maybe that's where he picked up loving strangers and being kind to outsiders. I love that. That where culture and society sees this prostitute Rahab, and immediately we hear that word and we think, oh, bad, evil, wicked person. She ends up in the line of Jesus with this woman named Ruth who ends up being redeemed by the only part in history where we see a kinsman-redeemer thing actually happen until Jesus comes. Because I'm convinced that Matthew is trying to make this bigger point through the lineage of Jesus, through who the family members of Jesus are, That Jesus wasn't just a sacrificial lamb. Jesus wasn't just a perfect guy. He didn't just have this screwed up family. But Jesus is actually our kinsman redeemer. He's actually our guardian redeemer. All through the Old Testament, there's these forerunners to Jesus. That show off the a particular quality or trait of Jesus. And and we see that through scripture and we go, oh wow, that looks like Jesus there. Just a little bit. Because God's trying to show us something in the Old Testament. And Boaz is a forerunner to Jesus. And remember, the qualifications to be a guardian redeemer are this. And these are the fill-ins on your notes. He must be near of kin. He must be near of kin. Jesus was related to us through the incarnation. In other words, through taking flesh on, Jesus became related to all humanity. He took on the flesh and the DNA of all humanity. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and the only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He must be near of kin. Two, He must be able to redeem. He must be able to redeem. He must be free of any calamity or need or redemption Himself. Jesus didn't need a redemption. We needed it. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 says, But in in these days, last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appeared 
whom he, I'm sorry, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had proven purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's able to redeem. He must be willing to redeem. Titus 2 1 through 4, uh, 1 14, I'm sorry, Titus 2 14 says that Jesus gave himself. That word gave is voluntary. He must be willing to redeem. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness to purify us as a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then redemption was completed when the price was fully paid. 1 Timothy 2.6 says, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. This baby who was born would change everything. All through the Old Testament, the history was shouting, there's somebody coming that's going to redeem all of humanity. It showed up in people like Ruth and Rahab and Tamar and, and Bathsheba. And it showed up in this guy named Boaz, who ended up being this kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And I love that in the book of Ruth, if you read it carefully, you'll see this phrase all throughout. It says, it just so happened. All the way through the book of Ruth. But I don't think there's any coincidences in the book of Ruth. I think they're divine coincidences. It just so happened that Boaz, it just so happened that Naomi, it just so happened. Because of a divine set of coincidences, Ruth met her guardian redeemer that revealed that Boaz is a forerunner to Jesus. See, this season changes everything because there was a child that changed everything. This season changes everything because God stepped out of heaven and became our guardian redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. Maybe you're here today And you've never started a relationship with the God of heaven and earth. The God who stepped out of his place. And and the beauty of the Christmas story is that it doesn't just reveal that he became flesh and became human. But it reveals that he cares about humanity. And that he wants a relationship with us. And maybe for the first time in your life you simply need to start a personal relationship with Jesus. Today's the day that you want to be part of the family. And you simply need to just accept him as your Savior. I mean, that's as simple as that. There's all these sinner's prayers, all these things that you could simply say, Lord, I, I want to learn more about you, and I want to accept you as my Savior. I, I need forgiveness of my sins. It could be as simple as that. Maybe you're here today, and your relationship with God is simply stale, and just old and crusty. I don't know. I couldn't. I'm thinking a word off the fly. And just... a a stale relationship with God, and and you need God to breathe fresh life into your relationship today. And you simply need to renew that, refresh that with God this morning. I want to give you that opportunity through something we do here called communion. We do communion not just because we want to taste a little meal, or not just because, it's not just the, the juice, and it's, it's not just the cup, and it's not just the bread. It's much more than that. It, rev- it reveals a deeper spiritual reality. So I want to invite the band to come forward, and then I want to 
invite our ushers to come forward because today, as we take communion, we're reminded that the God of heaven stepped out of his beautiful place, became a man, so that we might find redemption. And we find redemption, this meal in itself tells a story. The meal in itself tells a story that he gave his body and that he gave his blood for the redemption of your sins and that you were bought at a price. So as the ushers pass this out in a few moments, as the ushers pass this out today, I want to invite you to think about that, that I was bought at a price, that Jesus gave his life for me. Maybe this is a moment where you either accept Jesus for the first time or maybe you renew your relationship with Jesus. I just want to invite you to do that today. There'll be a point where we stop in the song, then, sure, where we stop in the song and we take this as a community together. So ushers, would you please come forward? And I'll pray during that time.